Focus. 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 Close your eyes. Close your eyes. It's looking through your eyes, man. No, it's not working. Oh, here we go. It's coming. It's coming. Yeah. You're too close to the camera. Pull it back a bit. Yeah, get your face out of the screen. Nah. Oh, here it goes. You're listening to Can't Sell This, a podcast about creativity, creatives, and their process with your hosts, Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. It's been uh, it's been a while, and uh, and I'm glad we're doing this follow up because there's so many things I think we should be talking about, um, just that have happened in the world, uh, the crazy. I mean, the craziness of COVID, but then all the other stuff that's been happening just at the same time. Um, but before we get into all of that. Why don't you introduce yourself for our listeners that haven't listened to that first part? And I will definitely put a link for that episode because people really should be listening to that's our futurists, uh, futurism episode. Uh, but but Dre, introduce yourself to our our guests. Awesome, thanks. Um, uh, well, first, uh, thanks for having me uh, on uh, the show again. Uh, my name is uh, Dre Labray, and I am a creative director, technologist, a future thinking type of guy, uh, jack of all trades, uh, type of guy. So that, that's, that's basically it. That's, that's me. <laughs> nice. Um, well, okay. I don't even know where to start. What have you been up to since we last talked? Last time we talked, I was in the middle of <clears throat> a nice long stretch of doing, uh, nothing mm. involuntarily. So, uh, due to COVID, but, uh, things really picked up in the fall for me. And, um, I've been, uh, I've, I've kind of accidentally started directing. It just happened out of, out of the blue. So I've directed a few spots. I directed uh, two or three documentaries and uh, really, really enjoyed doing that. And a few of those things are uh, future focused or future, uh, future laden, if you will. <laughs> but um, yeah, I've been doing that. Uh, I've been doing some, some uh, creative direction. I'm working with a couple of friends on a virtual production studio uh, you know, I've been keeping really, really busy and, and also using a lot of this time to, or this spare time that I had, I, I don't have too much spare time anymore, but just doing stuff I've been wanting to do for a long time, like learning blender and, uh, and playing around with, uh, uh, app development. So yeah, I'm going more back to my real creative technology, mm -hmm. course, which is get my fingers dirty, understand how it works. Might not be the best at doing it, but I feel like the experiential knowledge is really, really important. So when yeah. I work with the professionals, I know how to, I know how to talk to them. I 100% hear you on that. I have also started looking into uh, blender. Uh, so it's funny that we both picked the same uh, 3d software tool, but uh, uh, I happened, I picked up a, a secondhand 3d printer, a resin printer. So uh, I was like, okay, cool. I can I can print stuff that I can find on the web, but I think I want to make my own things. So, uh, but I'm I'm curious about the um. The, you said you were doing documentary spot or uh, uh, you you directed documentaries. Are those your own projects or are those things you were doing for clients? There are things that I was doing for clients. I um, I did a documentary for an environmental organization about. I'm, I'm not even sure how much I'm allowed to talk about it at this point because I don't even That's know if it's released yet. But, um, you know, one of the many, many <clears throat> issues that are plaguing our planet today and uh, a friend of mine was directing it. An unfortunate circumstance happened where uh, he got in a car accident. And, oh, uh, yeah. And uh, he called me up and he said uh, you know, he's fine, but he needs time to recover. And if I could go in and help uh, pinch hit for him. So I just basically took it over and it was at the very beginning stages of it. So I just uh, ended up uh, directing it and um, uh, working with a really cool team. And uh, yeah, it turned out really great. Interesting. It, it does sound like you've sort of, like you said, rolled your sleeves up and, and dove right back into, uh, into the making aspect of it. I know the last time we talked, you had, a, we're doing a lot of sort of like the conceptual, uh, you know, futurism stuff. Mm. Um, 
how do you feel about uh, working remotely then? You know, I mean, from a, from a consulting standpoint, it's very different than from trying to work with a team. And I can only imagine that, that there were some challenges that you must have faced with filming a documentary uh, during basically a lockdown. Yeah. The uh, lockdown rules for filmmaking are very different than the lockdown rules for mm-hmm. everyone else. It's uh, pretty much business as usual as long as you're wearing a mask, uh, you know, reduced size of crew, mandatory COVID tests, getting long Q-tips stuck up your nose every few days. Um, you know, that it's, it's, um, it's uh, very rigorous. But, uh, you know, the show must go on, if you will. And I think that's one of the businesses that they chose to let uh, uh, continue working. Right. I I think, I mean, especially here in Toronto, where there's just so much media production happening, it would be crazy if all that was shut down. The the number of people who would not be working right now would be... Yeah, you know what would be crazy if they shut down would be small businesses that we could uh, <laughs> go and get, you know, our day-to-day stuff instead of yep. box stores. Pretty crazy yep. if we did that. Yeah, but but who would do that? No, no. No, no one would do no that. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's become almost a regular segment on our show now to talk about what's been going on in your life in COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because, uh, I mean, I was thinking back to a year ago when you know, the, the first lockdown happened and we just thought this was going to be three weeks and here we are a year later and it's still ongoing. And it, it seems like this is probably going to be the way things are going to continue for the foreseeable future. Um, have you put any thought to how potentially we can change some of the, the businesses or some of the operations we have and, and think about sort of uh, a sort of a more lockdown or, or COVID uh, centric, uh, process. Yeah. I, I mean, I've given it some thought, uh, and I've also read and studied a lot of other people's thoughts around the matter as well. And there's a lot of really good stuff out there, but, um, the, you know, and I don't want to sound like that guy who, who, uh, look, I told you so, but uh, when, when, when I first, figured out that this thing was getting out of control in February, January, February, I was, I was out of the country for a month. And I remember phoning my parents prior to coming back to Canada and telling them, Hey, why don't you guys uh, just stock up on some stuff? I think it might be good to just make sure the freezer is full of, full of food. And uh, what my travel partner and I, we had, discussed was this idea of if this does turn into a pandemic and how long it takes to to uh, gen, uh, generate a, or develop a vaccine, it's going to be a really, really long time. So when I got back in early March last year, I started self-quarantining right away. I went and bought all the toilet paper and did all the cool things that you could do back then before people were even doing that. But um, I was a bit prepared for the worst and I, and part of being a futurist and this is this is uh, I, I use the, the the term futurist loosely in the sense that I, I I use the term because it is the most applicable term or the most common term used for people who think about the future that way but realistically I just I just think critically about the future mm-hmm. in in a certain way not too different than how a designer or a UX developer might think about the future. It's all futurist based stuff, but the future that I was thinking of uh, is uh, like preppers. Preppers are one of my favorite futurist subsets. And uh, I've got a little bit of prepper in me. I I like the idea of, of being self-reliant, self-sufficient. I have a bug out bag uh, more because I like the idea of collecting the things and packing it up all nice and neat. Do I, do I plan on leaving the city? Not really. I don't think that's going to be a thing, but with that said, having a bit of a prepper uh, background uh, in the back of my head, I was a little bit more prepared. The the uh, sorry, I'm taking this on a completely different. No, no, now. that's that tangents are what this show is about. So amazing. <laughs> um, but just to go back to answering your question, had I thought about it, yeah, I started thinking about it a, a year ago, really thinking about it long term. I've got some futurist friends who had developed 
robust uh, COVID scenario documents that imagined all various possibilities and a whole bunch of which uh, uh, ended up coming to fruition. Not that they were predictions, they, they were just um, robust uh, scenario uh, prompts. But uh, it, what, what's happening nowadays, I, I like the remote working idea. I think if you're lucky enough, if you're fortunate enough, if you're privileged enough to be able to remote work, then that's great. I am uh, deep down kind of an introvert, so I do, I love it. This is a time of my life. But, um, you know, there's a lot of issues. Uh, people with kids who mm -hmm. are seeing their kids lacking you know, missing out on really, really important socialization. Uh, so figuring out how, how that works, but the moving forward from now, I think the really important thing that we need to do is wear a mask, get vaccinated, stay apart, follow, follow the protocol. I think masks are here to stay at least for, for a while, even after we're all vaccinated. I think that travel will start to pick up. I think more local travel, national, not so much international travel. I think business travel is dead. I think a lot of companies realized a couple of big things. Offices are a waste of money and mm -hmm. it's a waste of time. Yeah, I, I think um, I think we share a lot of the same thoughts there. Uh, I keep thinking about how uh, in many countries, uh, masks were always a thing. If you felt sick, you put one on when you went out in public, you know, so that you wouldn't spread your germs to other people. It wasn't meant to be preventative of you getting it. It was meant to be preventative of you spreading it. And you know what really bugs me about what bugs me about that? Not the mask wearing. I think it bugs me that people's response to mask wearing. And a lot of people, you know, being in Toronto and being on the subway and seeing somebody wearing a mask. And, and let's be frank, it's, uh, Asian people have been doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. I think it's an amazingly empathetic gesture. Mm -hmm. I'm protecting you from my germs. And then you see people who are, uh, you know, whatever, calling them names, saying stupid things. But, and right now, because we've got this, you know, th this, I didn't even re realize was going on, but the, the whole stop Asian hate thing that's happening. Right yeah. Now, yeah. I've, I've seen it. Uh, and it's like, I understand there are racists in the world, but I didn't realize this Asian hate thing is so much bigger than, than, uh, than I knew about. So, you know, th this is, this is, it's, it just sucks that they're doing it for everyone else's good. And, and we have these stupid, stupid racist mm -hmm. that are happening that we need to, we need to find a way to just stop that stuff. So yeah, masks, masks are good. I'm glad we're all wearing masks or at least most of us are wearing masks now. Absolutely. And I think beyond mass, like what you were, were saying about uh, businesses, I think there have been some um, sort of eye-opening moments during COVID that aren't even health related. Uh, just, you know, everyone was forced to work from home, but then all of a sudden I, I feel that a lot of businesses realize that the way that we've been doing business for, you know, decades might not be the only way we can do business and might not be the best way to do business. Now, you're, you're right. There is definitely a, a, an element of privilege that's involved with being able to work from home. Um, and it's not for everyone. But I think the idea of reducing the office size and uh, has a lot of benefit, not just to the employee and the employer, but also to the environment and to you know, other aspects of uh, you know, city life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, offices are important. I I like the team structure. Yes. I like groups of people jamming together, whiteboarding and, and doing that type of thing, but also just not even just offices, but shared spaces, factories and, mm -hmm. and places where groups of people come together to make things, build things. But there are, a, there's a certain subset of workers that don't necessarily need that. And they should by default be given the option to, come and go, but little things that offices might end up doing, we're seeing it right now. There are 
the left side versus the right side of the hallway and which stairwell you can go up versus which stairwell you can go down or staggering the notion of everybody come in at nine and everybody leave at five and staggering it by half hour intervals so that you're not creating some kind of a human bottleneck in the elevators and the stairwells. There's these new ideas that are starting to break the mold of what we see, see saw as rigid uh, time commitments to now being a little bit more uh, flexible. Mm -hmm. What are you doing these days? What am I doing? Oh, okay. So I've been, um, I've been contracting. Uh, I've been, I've been consulting and working as a narrative designer on some stuff, mm -hmm. uh, mostly games and VR uh, and teaching at Ryerson. So that's, oh, that's going. Yeah. I noticed that there was a Ryerson zoom, <laughs> zoom bomb. Um, how do you, um, what are you, what are your thoughts on the state of VR right now? I, I let me, I'll just give you a little bit of context and maybe okay. I, uh, I bought a, an Oculus go um, a, over a year ago. And then I bought the quest when I got back to Toronto last year for lockdown. I was like, I'm right. just going to buy a quest. A couple of buddies of mine bought quests and, we play golf all the time, which is awesome. Or walk about mini putt, which is so much nice. Fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they launched a new level yesterday, a sci-fi level, which is very excellent. But anyways, um, I, uh, I I've been playing. I spend a not a lot of time. I spend a couple of nights a week playing around in VR with buddies. And I'm curious to know, like, what are your what are your uh, go-to games? What are mm. your what technologies are you digging in VR? I, I'd love to dig a little bit more and learn. Sure. More. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I'll put it this way. Um, I was all in uh, and was doing a lot of work sort of at the beginning of the pandemic in location-based VR, which I, I remember when the first lockdown hit, I was like, oh, this, these projects are all going away. This is all done for. say location-based, do you mean like the void style of the uh, thing where you're in a room that matches the space you're in? Not to that degree, but any kind of VR, like some of it was that, yes. There was definitely one project that was very void-esque, but there were all sorts of projects that were just, you know, like a sit down, almost like a, um, a D-Box style seat with a VR headset that let you do some kind of experience. Um, or a single seat version of that as well. What's uh, a D box? What's D box? Uh, like the uh, in the theaters, they have those seats that that shake and rumble. Oh, and, that, I yeah. didn't know they were called D box seats. Yeah, I worked on uh, a, um, a D box seat yeah. movie once upon a time. Uh, what, what what headsets do you have? I haven't owned one for ages because I've always had access either through work or through school. So I finally got my, myself uh, a Quest Two, and it is the the first like home personal use VR set that I've had or headset that I've had in, in years, which is kind of crazy, but. Uh, you play golf sometime. I'd definitely be into that. I have been, um, uh, I'm, I'm a convert to Beat Saber for my workout. Yeah, so yeah. I, Beat I'm doing that every morning. Um, I tried uh, Supernatural for a while. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was okay, but. Expensive. It's expensive. Okay, yeah. so supernatural. Okay, supernatural comes from Chris Milk. Uh, yeah, his company Verse. I guess they're called Verse. Uh, and um, I like. I love. Is the it sort of? Is it Verse or is it within now? Because I. Oh yeah, within within or, or yeah, here right, be right. dragons. I, I don't know. No, no, no. It's like it's, it's within. It's within <laughs> right. I remember now. But the um, supernatural when that came out, I I got the demo. I tried it mm -hmm. out. I considered subscribing. It's really expensive. Yeah, uh, it's it's the cost of a couple of Netflixes a month type of thing. But the uh, the it, what he did it was very it's so strategically interesting. One, it's it's totally geared towards women. It's it's a great app to get uh, women involved. The, the aesthetic works really well. I'm not trying to generalize because I I also mm -hmm. am very very attracted to it. But the, the you can tell that they've turned it into something that that it's just more sophisticated, more mature. It's not 3D backgrounds. It's beautiful mm -hmm. panoramic vistas. The workouts are amazing. It has that Peloton angle of personal trainers giving you the workouts and giving you that. It it, it doesn't have the geekiness that Beats Saber has. Yeah. But have you tried uh, Audio Shield? Have you tried that one? No. It that, sounds very familiar. But... It predates Beat Saber, believe it or not. It's the original, like, uh, swiping like uh, game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Upload your own music on it. It's 
Oh, it's okay. a little bit more. Uh, it's a little bit more open than something interesting. Like Saber, but yeah, it's 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 really good. The the games that I've been outside of Beat Saber, what I've been playing the most, I, I played through the Room VR. I absolutely loved it. So it's a puzzle slash escape room, yeah. basically mist in VR. Uh, and then uh, bought into a game called Red Matter, which I haven't uh, really started yet, but it's the same idea. It's a, uh, a puzzle-based uh, uh, VR game, which is also supposed to be pretty good. It's more of a sci-fi theme. Uh, and then um, I did a couple of these sort of like um, like the Baobab, uh, Baba Yaga short film. It's like an animated short film. Yeah, that's the Russian yeah. you know, oh. the house with the chicken legs. Isn't that yeah, the- yep. yeah. Uh, but it's a it's a beautiful combination of 2D and 3D art. The animation is incredible. And then beyond that, uh, not not too much else. Not yet. I I think like right now I want to find some kind of VR experience that I can use while I'm rowing. Yeah. And I don't think our uh, rower is connected to anything. But I'm I'm going to start looking into it. Have you been to the VR Health Institute website? No, I should check it, it out. Great. Yeah, so VR Health Institute is a website that. measures the uh, caloric burn and the physical intensity of games and equates it to everyday sports. So uh, Thrill of the Fight, which ranks high, I think it's the highest ranked game. Thrill of the Fight is a legit, uh, will tucker you out. I watched a YouTube video where somebody got a, a really physically fit athletic person to do it and he was he was apprehensive of VR being something worth uh, mm-hmm. using for, for physical fitness. And the, the end result was that he was tuckered out after three or five rounds of boxing. I think it's five rounds. And um, he, he said it felt like he ran 5k, like he was sweating. He could barely speak, but yeah, the VR health Institute is a great place to find out. Yeah. I'm checking that out. No, and one of the exercises that they equate is rowing they'll say that that playing this game is the equivalent of rowing for however long. So yeah, take a look at that and it might uh, inspire. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Ideas. I I think a rowing apparatus would be great. Meanwhile, here I am thinking about creating a, uh, uh, a a 3d trackable coaster from or cozy for my beer. Because I'd like, I'd like it to, to, to exist in virtual space. Like my, my, um, uh controllers do so i can actually see yep. it I can, yep. I can go and reach for it so uh, my my absolute favorite story about that uh aspect was when the vive trackers first came onto the market like two maybe three years ago maybe it was more than that mm-hmm. it's probably more than that now but the first vive trackers that came onto the market that were separate from the, the controller um there was somebody who who had an issue playing vr be, like a developer because their cat kept like walking around and they would oh, like man. step on their cat. So they put the, the Vive tracker on their cat's collar. That's and then it. his friends who came over, they said it was worse than the actual cat not being there. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I love that story. Uh, but um, so, yeah, the thing that, that I've been focused a lot on is, is the hand tracking. Mm-hmm. Um, so because quest two has the ability to, you can just use your hands without, controllers mm-hmm. um so one of the projects that i'm working on is 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 looking at that as a uh, as our uh, the main input uh, input method like controllers will still be available but we want to test what we can do with hand tracking how that feels like again i'm always coming at it from a story angle and saying that there's a difference between holding something in your hand that's a controller and the abstraction of button presses which we're all used to mm-hmm. But if you're doing this two finger pinch, what does that do for the the sensation of actually like holding? Like if you had to pick something up, if you're just pinching it and you're not actually holding anything anymore, you know, like imagine Beat Saber where you're not holding your, your batons and you're just waving arms. It doesn't yeah. feel. Yeah. I great. feel like hand tracking, hand tracking will, I think the killer app for hand tracking, once they figure out the hand tracking itself is, is haptic gloves. Uh, mm, mm-hmm. that, that, yeah. that offer resistance that make it feel like you're you're touching things but then why have the hand tracking when the gloves <laughs> can do the tracking you can shortcut an entire yeah. entire thing that way so the area where i find that there's there's a lot of benefit to hand tracking is for um augmented reality and for things where you you don't want to have a controller or gloves mm-hmm. with you 
like you know when you're out of the home and you're out yeah the doing digital stuff. yeah the digital twin um yeah uh, stuff that's happening in advanced manufacturing the you know cyber physical uh design uh that that that's happening in, in manufacturing is something that i could see right now i you know i i use controllers and i'm accustomed to trigger triggers um and buttons and it's enough for what I need right now. But even when I'm playing in, there's a 3D sketching or there's a 3D modeling program, Gravity Sketch. Gravity Sketch, yep. Got that one too. And even with, you know, several buttons and triggers, it's very limiting. You start to realize how much hand tracking would, how much it would benefit from hand tracking and being able to responsively understand the nuance of what your fingers are doing to do mm-hmm. fine detail. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I have a lot of heart for VR. I think that, I think it's a lot of fun. It's been one of my favorite things to do during the, during lockdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, even this afternoon, a buddy of mine pinged me and said, Hey man, you want to do a round of, of, of mini golf? There's a new level. And we were able to hang out and shoot the shit and play some golf. And I took the headset off after 45 minutes and went back to work. And it, it felt like I left the house for a minute. And, uh, you know, I, I, I see such great potential in it and, uh, I, I can't see it not succeeding in the long run. No, I, I agree. I think, um, it always goes back to 2015, 2016, when everybody was talking about VR is going to explode next year. You know, my reaction to that was like, that's, that's too soon. That's way too soon. You know, anything forecasting or predicting is technically disregarded by futurists as being invalid typically future futurists will look far in the future and create multiple scenarios and see multiple futures and they don't predict anything they just imagine what might potentially happen and then work their way back to the present to Mm -hmm. see where we are today uh you know juxtaposed to you know the trajectory that might take us Mm -hmm two various things and it's imagining, uh, you know, good, bad and transformative futures and different, different flavors. But, um, uh, but, and when I hear evangelists, I I don't know, I don't want to be, I'm sure there's probably some evangelists that are listening to your show, but like evangelists is just like, that's just a salesperson. Yeah. And I would start startups, like call small businesses, startups called evangelist salespeople, evangelists uh, evangelists call software product it's it's just the the codification of a of a set of terms to make it exclusive to to one subset and and believe me one of the things that i've struggled the most with in the last six months is what my title is so uh, Um, i get it um yeah i i'm I'm this i'm same with you i I, I leaned into the futurist thing for a while and i was doing a lot of design fiction and some strategic foresight and some scenario planning with with clients and I, I really enjoyed it, but a lot of it was very theoretical. A lot of it was um, lots of thinking and not enough doing. And, mm-hmm. and when the consulting work really dried up during the pandemic and I had months to, to kick back and, uh, and I was lucky enough to have a bit of runway to, to not be too stressed out about that, that as I started doing more things, I just realized how much I enjoyed like I enjoy filmmaking. I, I enjoy the, I like like cameras. I like the technical intricacies of cameras. I love playing around in 3d. I like prototyping apps. I like, um, you know, anything that's just kind of technical that I can sit down and learn and spend an evening on YouTube, watching tutorials and, and, and upgrading my skills. And that, that, that was one of those, you, you ever see that Ikigai, chart the japanese uh chart of uh finding meaning in life and it's like what you love and what you do and what brings good stuff to the world and all these types of things you know i sat down and looked at that and it's all these uh you know it's it's a big venn diagram is what it is there's a lot of overlaps that 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 overlap in doing things i love the creative aspect of the thinking i love the coming up with ideas and that's one of my favorite parts of executing is executing great ideas but it's the making things that makes me very, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's my happy place. Yeah. And I think there's also, uh, at least for me, and maybe, maybe it's the same for you, but like a, um, a, a refocus on smaller scope. Small is a new big. Yeah. Niche is the new mass. Mm-hmm. 
I learned that when I was still a creative director in advertising and I was preaching that to a lot of my clients because they were coming out of the gates with media plans that were like, we're going to make TV commercials. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm, I'm a guy in advertising, creative directing TV commercials, convincing my clients that maybe don't put all your eggs in that TV commercial basket because, you know, it's like television ads are, uh, you know, are, as I've heard, uh, and I agree with our attacks on the, um, on the, uh, the, uh, the stupid and the uh, technology, technologically illiterate. Mm. That's, that's, that's basically what it is right now. Think about where TVs live right now and who's watching TV. Yeah. If you watch any commercials right now, it's, there's, there's no, you know, the, where the money is, you know, if you're going to look at it like that, uh, the money's not watching TV anymore. Right. The, you know, the biggest thing any brand could be doing is working on Instagram, doing stuff in Instagram right now. But yeah, it's um, this idea of carpet bombing giant swaths of people with this one generic message just doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. And, and I'm not even just talking about advertising in general, but I, I, I strongly believe in this notion of the, um, I don't know who, who coined it, but the, the, the 1000 true fans, it might've been Kevin Kelly. Um, he coined this, this concept or the term of the thousand true fans. And that if you are uh, a band or a small business or even a, a big company, if you just have a thousand true fans, that's enough to support you podcasters these days if you get a thousand people on patreon which is small in the grand scheme of things a thousand people on patreon that that podcast is now your full-time job yep. yeah like you can hire people with that type of money like that's that's a an awesome way to think about it that we could all not be mass consumers but niche fans of the things that we feel strongly about and that we yep. care about and, and, and do just that um, subscribe to, you know, uh, buy subs from the Twitch streamer that you like, and you know, like just do those things. And that, that all adds up to, to the, the bigger pot of individuals uh, mm -hmm. you know, using their fan base to sell their merch and do their thing and see your shows and whatnot. And what I, what I love about that and, and sort of, so the, the Twitch streamer and YouTube uh, content creator were things that I was actually studying last year uh, at Ryerson. Uh, and it, I love that it's not only about niche audiences, but it's also then, then sort of promotes the niche creator as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer now about having a few big uh, productions that are, have to be made by a studio system because there's just no way in the world you know, six guys could get together and, and, and have enough money to put together a film like that. But now there's a lot of sort of, just like in Hollywood, we have blockbusters and then we have some indie films, but there's none of those sort of like mid-level films anymore. I, I think we're going to start seeing those coming back, not because people are kind of burnt out on these, these massive blockbusters, but also because we're starting to see that they're not infallible. You know, we saw mm -hmm. a Star Wars film get released that, that didn't, do so well with its fan base. I mean, but only one. <laughs> well, uh, fair <laughs> enough. Um, but I mean, like these 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 properties that, uh, that uh, seemed like they're the, you know you could never do any wrong. You'd be fine. You could release whatever, and, you, and it'll make a ton of money. And then now it's like, well, it's not really making a ton of money anymore. I, um, I so I, and I agree with you. I think I'm a big fan of some of the smaller budget films that are out there. I think some wonderful ideas that are being expressed. Uh, I, I also really like seeing how a small budget can be stretched mm -hmm. because the cost of quality has come down. Cinema cameras are not that expensive. You can get a Blackmagic Pocket 4K for 1500 bucks. Yep. And, and that thing shoots at 10 bit, and maybe 12 bit. I forget how, what the, the, the bit rate is, but it's, uh, uh, or how many bit, but it's, um, you know, it's a Netflix approved camera for crying out loud. Yep. You can make beautiful movies on that. I uh, only I pretty much exclusively watch YouTube and some streaming sites, and when I see mm -hmm. what's happening creatively in terms of of art, I watched. Uh, there's this one LA-based YouTuber camera guy, um, Josh Yo. I think it's Make Art Now is his his YouTube channel, and he did a couple of short films called Anamorphia. They're they're 
they're not really narrative films, but they're long. They're 10 or 12 minutes long, longish compared to what you would normally see a YouTube video. They're beautifully shot. They show off a lot of gear. They show off a lot of techniques, but I'm seeing trends where these films are prototypes for future things that could happen. Yes. You're 100, yep. your, your, uh, your 1000 true fans might Mm -hmm. do that i think who does this really well is neil blomkamp oat yes. studios yeah that whole notion of just make small films and they become the prototype for bigger films that come out later like i feel like he almost invented that genre with that original the, the what the the short film that he did that inspired that got him the district district nine, district nine. yep yep but uh what i'm also seeing is with your 1000 true fans on YouTube, you can also start a course because typically if you're an, uh, an expert on any given subject on YouTube, now the trend is have a course and sell something to people and create some kind of a revenue from them that way. We're seeing Patreon being mm -hmm. another thing. We're seeing how Twitch monetizes it through. We're seeing a whole bunch of different micro monetization for all forms of content. And this is right now almost happening exclusively in the internet, uh, not the underground, I would say the overground because it is YouTube. But think about how that starts to happen with filmmakers. Imagine mm -hmm. a filmmaker that now has a Patreon that is making, I'm sure there's a filmmaker that's got a Patreon that's making money and, and oh yeah, funding films. I mean, that's happening. I'm just saying what happens when it's, you know, uh, a famous Hollywood filmmaker that decides to say, fuck it. I'm yep. not. Do you swear on this podcast? This is of a, course we do. Fuck no. Point. Very, very sorry. The, um, the, the, you know, when you have a, um, uh, you know, a famous director who's now funding films based on fan funding as well, a yeah. studio investment, that's, there game that's a game changer right there was there. The, the veronica mars movie got made oh that of course way, of course right? that was like a kickstarter thing veronica yeah. mars, amazing series yeah did you yep. ever watch that i did i did and it was one of those ones that i didn't think i was going to enjoy i didn't know anything about it but i i thought i knew what it was and then when i started watching it i realized it was not what i thought it was and it was actually um, really good yeah a buddy of mine a really really good writer uh that played in a band and i used to play with him a lot um in the before times uh, he recommended watching it and i trust his writing because he's a very very intelligent philosophical type of writer and he considered veronica mars to be one of the best tv shows uh out at the time mm -hmm. and uh, i watched it and i got hooked and i thought what a wonderful like film noir yeah. style of 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 show but i haven't seen the 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 movie is does it live up to the I, ha series? I haven't seen it either i i just remember that it like the last i heard about it was that they had they had kickstarted it and it was going to get made and then when you mentioned Veronica Mars I was like oh yeah the movie I I, I wanted to track that down and I keep forgetting so yeah uh, so when yeah. I edit this episode I will make a note to go and find it <laughs> um, but what you were saying about short films like uh, the, one of the examples I always bring up is um, Jonathan and Josh Baker who are two brothers who who uh, made a short film called Bagman which was, I think that was like 2014. And then four years later, um, they released Kin based on their short film. I don't know the, I don't know the, the either of those. It's a, it's a sci-fi film. Um, it's got um, uh, uh, Dennis Quaid has a role in it and uh, Michael B. Jordan has a, a small role in it, but it's. Um, you had me at sci-fi. It's, it's, I mean, it's a decent, low budget um, sci-fi movie. And mm -hmm. it's interesting because if you watch Bagman and then you go see Kin, um, you can see how the short film evolved into a feature film. Mm -hmm. It's, it was really interesting to me because I, you know, we'd heard a lot of it. You know, we've seen, you know, the district nine short film be turned into a film and same thing there. But um, I've seen a couple of other short films get picked up uh, to be made into feature films, but then either the feature film, uh, is almost unrecognizable. Um, One of my favorite stories there is, do you know Prospect? Do you know that film? Prospect. That sounds oh, very familiar. Prospect. It was released at South by Southwest a number of years ago. It was, I think it was like the, 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 
the audience favorite thing it's basically father daughter are prospecting this mineral on a moon Mm -hmm. out in 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 outer space somewhere it's a science fiction thing it's a short film maybe 15 minutes long or so yeah with pedro pascal in the in the um in the in the future right yeah yeah he yeah pedro pascal is in the feature and they they did it they did the uh the feature film and i watched it and it's different they deviate there's a there's there the there's there's a few differences in how things work there but i really really like the original short film mm-hmm. a lot like i love the idea and at first when i watched the feature film i thought ah it's not they're not following the short film the way that i wanted them to right but by the time i got to the end i realized yeah it's a different film but it's really really good and they did some amazing uh world building i love the world building the theoretical part the creative part of 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 defining what the world looks like to inform the the stories and the characters and the motivation get everybody get everybody up to speed but the in both films they're mining a certain um, uh, mineral i can't remember what it is exactly but the world building was done in a manual that is a it's a miner's manual on how to how to how to extract this mineral and what tools to use and what weapons and it's a catalog of the tools and the weapons and the things that you you need it's done so well and you can find it somewhere i saw it on reddit somewhere and i ended up downloading all the jpegs uh, because i thought it was a great example of how you could do world building but that's it just a simple manual is all you need to immerse yourself put your mind yep. in that world but uh yeah prospect i'll have to check that out because i do enjoy that sort of diegetic material so like the idea of a uh, like you said, a, a manual uh, mm-hmm. that's for a specific um, occupation or, or job in that world, but it does a, an amazing job on its own of describing that world. That's yeah. great. Yeah, it's the um, world building is often the what I like to say is the um, the operating system for the story. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. the user good. manual for how to behave. I like that. Um, so, so you're watching a lot of, of YouTube. You said you're watching more short films like this, or is there are there any shows, any regular shows you're watching? Uh, there's regular YouTube channels that I right. watch. Uh, I have my, you know, I indulge in just the stupid stuff. There's a couple of reaction channels that I enjoy, uh, but uh, camera, camera guys, a lot of camera YouTubers, some art YouTubers. I, it's just a smattering. You know what it is? It's 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 probably a very unhealthy dopamine blast uh, when I when I get down the YouTube rabbit hole. So I do have to uh, limit my intake. But if I were to sit down for the evening for an hour or two before going to bed, I will choose uh, falling down a couple of YouTube rabbit holes before yeah. any pretty much anything else. I'll do that before watching a movie nowadays. But I, I also find that 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 type of viewing. Um, is I'll I'll get my fill much quicker than I would with a, an hour long TV show. The way I mean I, I don't get me wrong I I love serialized television. You know I love getting in like for instance right now um, I'm finally getting onto season three of Peaky Blinders. That's and, a show I never got in. I oh, I haven't started. I, I watched one episode, yeah. didn't get into it. I need to get into it. But I mean, that's that's an hour commitment, which leads into the next one. And then it becomes a, do we watch another one? Yeah. Whereas in YouTube, I can find, you know, three 15-minute episodes or videos and be like, yeah, that was, that was great. I'm done now. I found a video that was talking about an old uh, ARG called the Jejun Institute. Which oh, was, I don't know that one. It's related to the AMC show that came out in 2019, uh, Dispatches from Elsewhere. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's vaguely familiar. I don't know it, but yeah. I'll, I'll look it up. Yeah, I, I like looking up old ARGs. Yeah. Um, um, there. The, what's uh, okay? What what news things have you seen, or what new yeah. technology things have you have you seen that you want to have a chat about? Because well, you know, I think I think we might be thinking about the same one. But do it. Uh, let's talk about NFTs. Ah, I was going to say that. Too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. The whole story with Beeple selling his art. So the fact that he has not only become like the first person to make this type of a sale mm-hmm. is is incredible. The fact that he is now, I mean, by year's end will be a billionaire is also crazy. He is now going to be in history books. Yeah. He's going to be taught in art class. 
Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, NFTs are interesting. I got into them when uh, when CryptoKitties came out. Uh, I don't know how many years ago that was now. And uh, I remember poking around and 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 kind of getting it, but not really getting it. I yeah. I, I understand the basic idea of of ownership um, that that you can you can prove that that you own this thing and that this is a unique artifact and uh, the, the the example i hear all the time is that you know you can own a copy of the mona lisa but you can't own the mona lisa uh you know only the whatever i guess the louvre owns the mona lisa but um but in this case you you uh you know you could own that uh, original digital piece of artwork and anybody else who's grabbed a screenshot of it would technically only be you know uh have a copy of it, not even owning it, just possess a copy. Right. But there are, I think the art thing right now is easy because there's, it's an easy thing to create. If you look at the current state of NFTs, it's, um, it's a black hole of garbage art. Mm, yes. It's basically 3D yeah. clip art bullshit. It, there's nothing, there's nothing good about it. If anything, if people keep making NFTs, it's just going to ruin the entire concept of art as NFTs and might actually devalue uh, like people's stuff uh, mm -hmm. as, as a result. But the, the, you know, there's a bit of a gold rush. People believe that uh, I'll create this piece of crap art and put it online and uh, someone's going to buy it for, you know, $1,600. Right. No, that's not going to be the case. What people need to recognize is that, it's not too different than if you sketched a doodle on a notepad and somebody bought that doodle from you, your best doodle as a nobody is likely not worth a whole lot, but just shittiest doodle by a celebrity is worth a whole lot. Yep. So somebody like Mike has 1.3 million followers on Instagram. So he's a celebrity. Mm-hmm. There are, if you do, just do the math. If one percent of those people <laughs> were willing to, you know, if you if you if you did the math of like what his true one thousand fans are, no, he's got a he's got a million, one point three million fans, and in that fan base, and it seems like the people buying these NFTs right now are are crypto bros, right? They're people who made money on Bitcoin early on, and they are. Uh, they are pushing the Bitcoin story forward because they have this disposable income. And if you look at the highest selling crypto art, including Mike's, there's a Bitcoin or an Ethereum. There's some mention mm -hmm. of a blockchain or crypto right in there. It's very self-referential. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's not to say that's taking any way from the art because I think Mike's art's awesome and he's been doing it for a long time. He has like 13 years of credibility and legacy. Yeah. Yeah, and I could see why somebody would want to buy it. Although I do think the way that it was delivered in those glass plates with the screens, like that, that's beautiful. That to yeah. me is a yeah. beautiful manifestation of crypto art. But if you go to Reddit, uh, the NFT subreddit right now, and you just scroll down uh, a couple of scroll zones, you're going to see that it's it's anybody and everybody firing up Paint Shop Pro. Yep and mashing a few pixels together and then announcing that they've just released a new thing. This is also taxing the Ethereum blockchain because it used to cost, when I did CryptoKitties, it was pennies to mint a CryptoKitty. And then even a couple of months ago, when people was doing his, it was, I think it was like two or three bucks to mint. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a hundred dollars right now mm -hmm. to mint. Uh, that, like that's how much how much that system has been taxed and the carbon footprint this that huge, that has yeah, is, yeah. is massive. So yeah, it's, it's for sure, for sure a bubble and celebrities can take advantage of it. You're going to see a lot of people you're seeing it right now. Um, it, it, even with like Jake Paul, YouTube celebrity and these other Hollywood celebrities are taking advantage of it because they can, they have millions of people who follow them that are willing to spend that money. But mm -hmm. But uh, the average person, unless you're doing something absolutely fantastic, there are few things. I think there are like, if, if, if here, okay, uh, you know, a good example where I think this could go is 
people who are at the heart of famous memes, if they had a digital copy, the original digital copy, or they created a copy that they claimed to be the original and they minted it. So the celebrity example is uh, Rick Astley should mint the Rick Roll video. He should mint yeah. that song. Yeah. Like just mint, uh, never going to give you up. And, and, and someone will pay a lot of money to say that they own the Rick Roll from Rick Astley. That, that's a huge mm -hmm. one. But the Irma Gerd girl with the braces, she should mint that yep. meme. Yep. And, and every time that meme uh, sells in the future, uh, there's a way of monetizing it, but she could, she could get there. Star Wars kid, which was this kid, one of the very early memes, mm -hmm. this poor kid that, that, that was you know, already being bullied in school, felt like he was being bullied online. This is before memes were memes, not realizing that's almost a, a status. He grew up to become a lawyer. Uh, that actually fights anti-bullying, I believe. Uh, I remember watching a story a while back, but you know he could claim ownership of that. So th there are interesting ways that you could find unknown people, people who yes. are otherwise unknown, um, could have a shot of really taking advantage of this NFT because the internet is already taking advantage of their face or their that one snapshot in time. But yeah, uh, and then Kings of Leon releasing an album NFT. That was one of the early thoughts of what industry could benefit from that. Because with Spotify, you know, you make a penny a yep. stream. Yep. If you owned that NFT and every time that NFT was sold or streamed or engaged with, you could choose the uh, percentage that yep. you get yep. uh, a kickback from every, every time it's shared, every time, it, you know, there's... I think there's some interesting ideas there. So good for Kings of Leon for doing that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm just a, disappointed it wasn't a better band to that. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I did it first. A, a friend of mine who who's an author asked me about NFTs and, and how you could use it for books. And I said, well, I mean, the, the first thing I thought of is you could do limited edition prints, right? So you could do first uh, edition. Yeah, first edition and then sell 500 copies or 5,000 copies of the, of the book as a limited edition as well, right? But then the other side of it, I said, you could also just mint an NFT and keep it as essentially copyright, right? Now, even if this book gets copied, I can put it out on the internet, but but there's now a token attached to it that, that you know, identifies me as the author and owner of that of that actual property. You know, thinking, thinking about NFTs and... Uh where I think that could also go is uh, video game assets. I think that's going to be a, yes, that's huge, what I was thinking. Huge thing because there are, that means there's some talented players that are just making things and the, mm. and, and these things can now be way better monetized. Mm -hmm. uh, I look at Roblox as being one of the, I tried playing it. It's very kind of rough around the edges, but I can see how kids are really, really into it. But wow wow what an ecosystem like you can create like a level in a game and that can be monetized like crazy like roblox mm -hmm. does not have to create any levels they just need to support the infrastructure the development infrastructure and let the players mm -hmm. uh, create the uh, the worlds and the games and take it take points off of their monetization it's incredible it's it's going to be huge even even if you took um the model of a game that's all about loot about uh, about objects that you can get in the game. And yeah. and one of the problems that those games have always had is the balance between the casual gamer and the hardcore um, dedicated gamer. And uh, like, let's, for instance, take Destiny where there is end game content that really only the hardcore players can play, but the, the, the rewards they get, um, you know, there's nothing unique, right? A anybody who can get through that end game content can get those rewards, which might be a, a, a minor few, but how amazing would it be if there was, you know, a unique item and there's only one of that item and only one person in the world can win that item and, and pass it along later and so on. Yeah. When they have it, they have the right to sell it to another player. Right. So, yeah, I, I mean, that's awesome. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I, I think, the um, video games are going to likely be the real spark for NFT art right now is this beginning thing. We've seen people have some amazing success. I know that Josh Davis was doing something 
recently. I don't know how that went. I'm, I'm sure it went well because he's he's got a, a good fan base as well. But um, I think people with audiences will do okay, and we'll see how how the value stands up over time because things can be devalued just because it sells for this much today doesn't mean it might not be worth it later on. So long as you're cashing in your chips when you, when you get them. But um, I had a conversation with another friend about, he was questioning me about the idea of, of, of digital art in general. And I think the best example I, I can conjure up right now is a few years back, I read an article that apparently Andy Warhol owned a Mac computer, an early Mac, uh, and he had ma whatever Mac paint on it and had created like a very Warhol-esque piece of pixel art and they found it on a floppy disk and they put it in the computer and they discovered this art and it was like, oh shit, this is Warhol art. Like he had a computer and nobody knew that he was messing around with it. And he actually made something. This is unknown Warhol art. Wow. Exactly. So wow. if, you, if you were to take that floppy disk and, and, and mint the file on the floppy disk and say that the ones and zeros, the original ones and zeros that were etched onto this magnetic disk, were as a result of like Andy Warhol hitting the save dialogue box and you minted that, that romantic notion is now carried forward. And I could see that being a huge thing. Mm -hmm. So if anybody from whatever Andy Warhol's estate is listening right now, you can, you can, you can just cut me in on that, uh, <laughs> that royalty giving you a perfectly great idea right now. Yeah. I, it's, I think that we haven't even begun to see, you know, where it's going to go. Even just thinking about art and even just thinking about all, all my friends who throughout like the early 2000s, you know, you know, guys in animation and comics who didn't want to put their work up online because they thought, well, then just anybody can steal it. Now having an actual verifiable ownership of those files. Yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to consider because art is only valuable if somebody gives a shit about it. Mm-hmm. And the only way people are going to give a shit about it is if you give them a chance to steal it. If you make it good enough to steal, then your next piece of art is going to be worth selling. So when I hear the argument, and this is this, you know, this whatever, this is tough, and and I'm I'm looking at it from whatever my own myopic lens. I'm also I could say I'm a musician. I make music. I write music. It's on Spotify, and and actually I think he used one of the tracks. Um, mm -hmm in the, the, the last podcast I did with you guys, but you know, I know what lane I'm, I'm in. It's good music. It's for me, it's legacy stuff. It's, it's, I'm not going to make a living off of it. There's a lot of artists out there that I feel like if you just put it out there, I, I look at, I think Corey Doctorow has a really great philosophy. All of the books that he writes is free and, and available on his website. You just go to his website and you can download. He has a group of people that will create the EPUBs and the Mobis and the PDFs and, and, uh, and people download it. But guess what? There's all these people who appreciate that he did that and will go and buy the physical copy just because they can and because they want to yeah. tip them. And once again, that's your thousand true fans. Sure, a million people might download your book, but all you need is a thousand for them to buy the book. Yep. And you're doing fine. And uh, where I look at NFT right now, and I, I know I, I, I harshly called a lot of this stuff garbage art because it, it is kind of garbage art. It's not, there's no, there's no reason to like it. There's no reason to want it. It's cute that you downloaded a 3D model from Maximo and rendered it out in Cinema 4D. And now, now it's online, but it's just a, a rendering. Like the time you put into it does not equal the amount that you are demanding you eat. No, 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 no one's paying 1500 bucks for something you spent mm -hmm. 20 minutes working on. Right. Mm -hmm, exactly. Whereas people, people has 13 years of that, that, you know, I don't know how long it, it, it took him to, to render the uh, bull run art piece. I don't know how long it took him for, to render, but I know it took him 13 years to make it. Right. Exactly. It's not just, it's not just the time it takes to do the work. It's all the experience that goes into it as well. Yeah. Well, it says, it's like, I'm just, I'm, I'm somewhat paraphrasing, not paraphrasing, but uh, 
bastardizing, you know, famous uh, quote that, not a quote, a story that somebody had asked Picasso to make a, make a drawing on a napkin and he drew it and gave it to her and said, that'll be like $80,000. And she said, why so expensive? You, you drew it in 30 seconds. He goes, no, it took me 30 years to draw that. Yep. Yeah. I think to me, the NFT thing is one of the, uh, one of the more recent things. There's a lot more to unpack there. Um, I don't know what other technological things have been going on in the world these days that are worth thinking about. Well, there was the, um, uh, was it Ubisoft who made the virtual uh, human thing? Oh, um, uh, why am I? No, not, not, no, not Ubisoft. Uh, Unre- uh, Epic. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. You're talking about MetaHuman, right? Yeah. 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 MetaHuman's really great. MetaHuman is still, when you look at the still images, the hair looks great. The skin looks really, really great. The, the, the stills work well. They're convincing animation. There's still that, um, uh, uh, what are the uncanny valley? Yeah, of, sure. they, they don't quite, they're close. Dialogue is going to be tough. I think facial expressions will be good, but there's something about dialogue. There's something about micro expressions. There's something about every tiny little muscle that we're accustomed to seeing people use when they speak that I don't know right now if the, if it's, this is the, the, this is the question I have. Is it the, have we not modeled the musculature uh, of the face to that extent? Is it, is it the modeling or is it the computational power required to do that many like, have we modeled all the muscles, but is the computational power not there to actually make all those muscles uh, work? The, the, that right. I don't know. I don't know why, but the, the leaps are getting better and better. I feel like um, uh, metahuman plus deep fake might be the way to do it. Because mm-hmm. I watched the last episode of The Mandalorian. Uh, spoiler alert, I'm going to give away the ending. Right. Uh, now I won't give it away, but there is a, uh, a famous character from days before. Fuck it. Luke Skywalker <laughs> makes his big appearance at the end. And the, it, it has to be, a, it's not a de-aged Luke Skywalker. I think it is a, it was an actor with CG face and the CG, it just didn't work. Like this Luke Skywalker and the Mandalorian, which is great, like amazing scene, but you're like, that's not Luke. That's his, the face doesn't look right. And this YouTube channel, Order. all they did is they took the footage and they just deep faked it. They said, let's, oh. we're going we're gonna to take, we're going to sample Mark Hamill from when he was younger and we're going to deep fake it on this thing. It works mm-hmm. so much better. Like YouTubers made a more realistic mm-hmm. looking Luke yep. Skywalker than the producers of the Mandalorian because they just didn't pick the right technology. Yeah, we can fake so much now. We can fake voices. We can fake the visuals. Like it's getting to the point where a video you just can't you can't even trust if if what you're seeing is real anymore. Like oh, what's the video? Um, it's Chemical Brothers with Beck. I think it's called Wide Open, and the video is done by the Mill. I, I'm gonna have to refresh my memory. I, I'm um, familiar with the song. I'm sure I've seen the video, but. Have you okay? I'm gonna I'm gonna check that out. Have you ever read um, uh, the Futurological Congress by Stanislav Lem? I think. Lem? No, but I but he he's I've read some of his work and I love Stanislav. Yes, yeah, Stan, he's 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 great. Um, the um, uh, yeah, so it's called the Futurological Congress, and then they made a movie a few years back, and it's just called the Congress. Congress. Yeah. Yeah. You've seen Robin Wright. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. And this is to me a really great analogy of what deep fakes might, might get us right. Cause in the movie, Robin Wright's an actress. She's an aging actress, but a very, very popular actress. And one of the things that she does is she gets fully motion captured, facial captured, body captured and becomes this virtual thing. So every movie from here on in will be her but a digital version of her. So she's no longer actually acting in the movies. It's all a digital version of her. So to a certain degree, it's, it's like a deep fake. It's a, it's not you. It's, it's pretending to be, or it's, it's so, so much like you. And uh, that move, that movie was done really, really well. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. The animated s- sequence in that 
was fantastic. It is a far out wacky, wacky, awesome film, but it poses some really big questions. And that's what I love about Stanislaw's um, uh, writing style, because he was a, he was a, I think he was a physicist. He was an actual, he was a scientist. So it was very hard science fiction that he played, but yeah, it plays in the world of virtuality. It plays in the world of, of, uh, you know, technically deep faked you or digital version of you. And, 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 uh, where does the, where does the line cross? Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, listen, Dre, that, that sounds like a really good wrap up to, uh, to our episode. Uh, so thanks again for being here. I have a feeling that you will be here again in the future. So uh, I look forward to having many more chats and uh, have a good evening. Thanks, thanks for being a guest. Thanks again for having me and uh, see you in the future. This episode of Can't Sell This was produced in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. All creative content in this episode is copyright Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. Questions or comments can be emailed to admin at can'tsellthispodcast.com. Music for the podcast is provided by Not Of. Find Not Of at notof.bandcamp.com. Opening and closing voiceover provided by jeffwright.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, a like in whatever platform you use goes a long way to helping the podcast get noticed. Thanks for listening and keep creating. We'll see you.